Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, happy Duran Duran Appreciation Day and welcome to the 83rd episode of Movie Oubliette, the international podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, sniffling through hay fever in Cambridge, UK. And uh, funnily enough, uh, me, Dan, obsessed, obsessed with my nuisance in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) Always. We focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror movies because we love the pure escapism of wandering a strange deserted world, wondering where all the wildlife went, and going so crazy with loneliness we contemplate cross-dressing. Mm. Dan, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. How are you, Conrad? Yeah, just, uh, it's summertime here, so I'm sniffling a lot, so I apologise if my voice is not as sonorous as usual. It's always, it's always sonorous, Conrad. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> And you're obsessed with synths again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just an ongoing uh, addiction <laughs> problem that I have. But yeah, I've bought a new synth, just playing with it oh. every day. But I am selling my older synths, so it's it's not like I'm amassing piles. It is oh. balancing out. Right, okay. So it's not going to turn out like Lomatos's studio where it was just wall-to-wall synths. I mean, that would be the dream, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm the rest of my life ahead of me. Yeah, yes. And also a wife who might not appreciate it. Well, I'm still very jealous of your your new purchases. Which one have you got this time? It's called the Electron Model Cycles. It's actually a groove box. So it's an all-in-one FM synth play toy. (laughs) Yeah. Very jealous. So, Conrad, have we been hearing from our fans? We have. We have a new review on iTunes titled A Most Excellent Show. Oh. This is a very fun and very relaxing podcast about films, currently working through their back catalogue and loving every minute of it, says Evil Ed. (laughs) Very nice. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Evil. So I should also say hello to our new patrons. We've gained quite a few again. Uh, in the last couple of weeks. Wicked Person, Kelly Knight, who is the author of a really fascinating looking book called Twistern, where she looks at 50 twisted Western movie reviews, mm. which uh, should be worth checking out, I would think. Marway, Boss Salvage, and my favourite username, Ariel Badger Release. <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> but yes, welcome. We really appreciate your support. Mm, Yes, welcome aboard. On Leviathan and Ernie Hudson's best roles, Ray Goolsby said, It's a tough call. Ghostbusters is certainly the best movie he's appeared in, but Ernie is almost completely outshined by three comic geniuses in their prime. Mm -hmm. He's the only part of Space Hunter and Congo that's worth watching, and he truly has a chance to shine in them. But those are still terrible movies. Oh, I haven't seen Space Hunter. <laughs> no, it's it's down there in the oubliette, so we may fish it out at some point. 
Uncle Phil said, Winston Zeddemore is always going to be my favourite role. Also love him in The Basketball Diaries. He's wonderful in Leviathan, of course. And let's not forget he's in multiple episodes of Twin Peaks The Return, which I had forgotten. Also yet to see. Yeah. Well, I've seen it and I cannot remember a single thing that happens at him because I think I spent the whole time just baffled. Oh, that's lint for you, though. Yeah, I suppose so. And on Silent Running, Wicked Person said, man, Red Dwarf borrowed a lot from Silent Running. That's a really good point. Like the the whole interior, talking to a walking drone robot thing. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I didn't make the TV connections. I spotted some of the film connections, but yeah, not TV. So Mm. that's a good spot, Wicked Person. Kevin from Planet X said, I'm curious to see this now. I used to work on a museum ship, USS Intrepid, which is the same class as Valley Forge. And I remember how the lower decks smelled of mildew and were quite cramped. I'm sure Bruce had a lovely time smacking into bulkheads just as I did. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's funny. uh, I don't know whether it still exists, but there was a a Titanic themed restaurant in Melbourne. Uh, I'm not sure whether it still exists. And I think it was on a lean as well, which is ridiculous. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's really tacky. How inappropriate. Mm. And, of course, we heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hey, Serge. Hey, Serge. And he said, I had a lot of questions about Silent Running's plot the first time I saw it, but the second time around, I'm just vibing with the metaphor about how humans are the worst, gotta kill them all, but then life is unlivable without them. Playing poker with robots just isn't the same. Mm. Wow, Conrad, your impression of Serge has gone really good these days. Yeah, it's almost like he's here. <laughs> Actually, I am. Ah, Serge. <laughs> Hello. Hi. It's really great to see you. How are you doing? <laughs> doing good. It is funny to like announce my presence, even though we are, in fact, all three of us are on three different continents. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're our first ever guest, our favourite guest, and returning for the fourth time, so you're still way in the lead, Mm. and it's always great to have you back. Thanks. It's like the (laughs) highlight of my summer. (laughs) So what have you been working on recently? What should people be checking out on your channel? I took a month with a specific goal in mind of just, I, I usually try and pick my next video topic as soon as I upload a video, but this past month, I just kind of just read and watched stuff and waited to see if an idea would pop up. And then one came to me and the idea was more fully formed than it usually is. And so I started scripting it and it's coming along faster than normal. Although it did take me a month to come up with the idea. So it's probably going to wind up averaging out. So that's what I'm doing. I'm working on the next video. I'm also gearing up for a move. I've been in Chicago for the last nine years uh, and I'm gearing up for a move to Seattle next month, oh, wow. which is kind of, um, wow. it's been interesting trying to schedule my creative efforts around what I got to do to get ready for the move. But it's all good. It's all fun. I'm looking forward to it all. Wow. Wow. Yeah. A move okay. is a, a huge undertaking, yeah. especially that far away. It's funny you mentioned that. I told myself I wasn't going to bring this up during the podcast, but um <laughs> I'm gonna now because you brought it up first. Uh, I have this idea in my head that people who don't live in America don't always realize just how massive it is. Mm-hmm. And when I say people who don't live in America, I am, of course, euphemistically speaking of 
the British. And uh, <laughs> so I looked it up. And uh, Chicago is further from Seattle than Cambridge is from Moscow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's always good to point out because I think our image of America is basically it's just one big enormous metropolis with a few cute farms around the edges. Mm. and, And that's it. Yeah. And there isn't any space in between. Well, I suppose we better trundle on over to the oubliette and find out which film we're doing today. Serge, would you like to do the honours? I would love to, yeah. Okay, here I go. Oh my gosh, it looks like somebody remodeled in here. Oh. You've got like, it looks like a kitchen. Oh, hang on, let me turn off this kettle. Oh wait, and the stove is on too. Let me turn that off, hold on. That's irresponsible. Okay, okay, I've got the film and I'm coming out, okay. I killed my mate's wife. It was necessary, eh? So what have you got for us? The Quiet Earth. Directed by Jeff Murphy, written by Bill Baer, Bruno Lawrence, and Sam Pillsbury, based on the novel by Craig Harrison, starring Bruno Lawrence, Alison Rutledge, Pete Smith, and no one else. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, so what's it about? Zach Hobson wakes up in a nondescript motel room one morning, only to discover when he ventures outside that he appears to be the only person left in town, the only person left in the city. The only person left in New Zealand. The only person left in the world. After overcoming a bout of madness brought on by his newfound solitude, Zack settles into a comfortable routine for what appears to be the rest of his solitary existence. Whereupon he meets Joanne, another survivor of the mysterious event, who likewise has no idea why they seem to be the only two people left alive on the planet. But then they meet Oppie, yet another survivor, which offers them the chance to finally figure out what they all have in common— and perhaps the ultimate cause for humanity's disappearance. Mm. But if two is company, three's a crowd, and the love triangle that quickly forms between them all threatens to destroy what little stability they've managed to carve out of the ruins of the old world. Will the three of them finally settle into a lasting peace? Does Zach Hobson know more about the event than he's letting on? Just how many kettles were left on when everyone disappeared? <laughs> all these questions and more will be answered in The Quiet Earth. Ooh. Ooh. Sounds exciting, and we're in your homeland, Dan. Yeah, I know. I can't wait. After the break. And we're back to talk about The Quiet Earth, a 1985 New Zealand post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Gosh, that's difficult to say. (laughs) Now, normally I would ask who's seen it before, but actually we were cunning this time and picked something that none of us has seen before. Triple blind. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dan, I guess I throw it over to you because this is from your homeland. Yeah, it is from New Zealand. Apparently New Zealand's first sci-fi as well. And New Zealand just doesn't do sci-fi. I tried to look up other New Zealand sci-fis that doesn't exist. We do comedy and drama and and horror Mm. uh, and fantasy, obviously. I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) Sci-fi is a genre we don't seem to delve into. And this film particularly, it seems to be completely forgotten by the whole of New Zealand. Like, I've never met anyone else from New Zealand that has seen this film, has mentioned this film. It's just vanished off the face of Earth, I guess. (laughs) So, yeah, I was surprised that this film exists. 
and I'd never seen it before. That's no. interesting because it's been on my watch list for years and years, and, and not trying to brag or anything, but I've seen it on lists of like great sci-fi films here in America. Mm. Really? Yeah. So when Conrad suggested guest starring on the Quiet Earth episode, I was like, I would love to because I it's been on my watch list forever. Right, yeah. And I finally get to watch it. But it's interesting that it would be, seems to be better known in America at least a little bit than in New Zealand. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. And it doesn't try to appear like it's not from New Zealand. Mm. Like they go to places that are very well known in New Zealand and uh, it doesn't try to hide its New Zealand But yeah, it seems to be much more famous outside of New Zealand than in New Zealand itself. Yeah, even in the UK, where it's been released in a deluxe remastered edition on Mm Blu-ray. Yeah, it seems like it's a cult art house favourite here and in the US. So it's really weird that it's not known at home, because I think Jeff Murphy is one of New Zealand's great exports in terms of directors. I think he went on to a career in Hollywood, much like Mr. Jackson mm-hmm. and Mr. Waititi. Yes. Probably more a gun for hire than those guys are in terms of being auteurs, because he worked on things like Free Jack, Young Guns 2, Under Siege 2, and Fortress 2. Yes, yes. The lesser known sequels. <laughs> yeah, probably all jumbling around down there in the oubliette. And also returned to New Zealand to be second unit director for Peter Jackson on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm. Yes. Well, I mean, I looked up his other films, his earlier films, and he's directed Goodbye Pork Pie and Utu, which are huge New Zealand classics. Really? They are the films that you should watch if you want to watch New Zealand films. So Ah. especially Goodbye Pork Pie, which has been remade recently as well. So yeah, I mean, three huge films for New Zealand. I am surprised he's not so as famous. I mean, sadly, he's no longer with us. No. Um, But yeah, it's a great legacy to leave behind. It is, yeah. And yet he wasn't the original director for this movie, There was a window closing in terms of a tax break in New Zealand. (laughs) And so they were told, no, you have to make this movie now. And the original director was Sam Pillsbury, who co-wrote the screenplay. And he didn't feel as though the adaptation was quite ready yet. So he said, I'll let it go. He said he was the only producer who's fired himself as a director. (laughs) Jeff Murphy (laughs) took it on. And Sam Pillsbury can actually be seen in the movie. He does have a cameo. <laughs> I read about his cameo too. He plays a corpse yeah. on the hood of a car. Mm. Yeah, quite symbolic, I think. So Jeff Murphy took this over in a very short space of time. And it has to be said, what he mounted on very limited resources is incredibly impressive because the film is at once more of a character piece than an apocalyptic epic. It's, you know, it's not generally interested in spectacle. And yet at the same time, visually, you do get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of spectacle sometimes. So it's quite impressive on both sides of the scale in terms of the personal and the visual, I thought. Yes, yes. I had the same thought. It's the quiet earth, the concept, this one guy, perhaps the last person on the planet. You figure there's going to be shots of him like walking down empty streets and stuff. And there are a lot of those. But he keeps doing things that require a bigger budget and more coordination than merely shutting down a street for an hour. He goes on a shotgun rampage through a church. He (laughs) wanders through a stadium with nobody in it. I suppose all I'm saying is I too was impressed by the production design. I read in uh, in the trivia of IMDb that it has 92 locations. Wow. 
which is just like sounds astronomical to me. Yeah. yeah. For a film made on 600,000 New Zealand dollars. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. It's pretty amazing. Yes. Production wise, I mean, that scene with the burning building and the crashed passenger jet is, oh, yeah. It's incredible. Like, it's wow. That's very well made. So long as we're mentioning the plane crash scene, there was one little detail I don't want to forget. He comes across this plane that has crashed and there's wreckage strewn everywhere. And you get the sense, because this is right at the beginning of the film, he's still trying to figure out where everyone is and he comes across the wreckage and he's looking at the seats and you get the impression he's looking for bodies. And what he does is he reaches down and he pulls into frame the seat belts Mm. on these airplane seats are buckled, but there's no one sitting in them. And I thought that was just a great... WTF detail. Yeah. It's not like Night of the Comet where people left behind like clothes in a pile of dust. Yeah. They're just <laughs> gone. Yeah. And I thought that was a great way to deepen the mystery early on like that. Yeah. Yes. And I particularly compared it to Steven Spielberg's adaptation of War of the Worlds, where there is a plane crash that is curiously underpopulated, <laughs> barely any people to be seen. And it's because yeah. although he wants to dabble with post 9-11 imagery in that movie, he doesn't want to go so far. Mm. Still has to be PG-13. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted to point out the similarities between this movie and the TV show that I recently finished, The Last Man on Earth. Oh, yeah. Very similar. I don't know whether <laughs> any of you have seen it, oh. but a character that is the last man on earth goes around using resources, stealing cars, decides to move up in the world, just moves himself into a mansion, priceless artworks on the floor, and walks around in ridiculous clothing. And I'm curious to see if they borrowed from this film because especially the first episode of that TV show is eerily similar to this movie. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned you bring up parallels to other media because I started a little list of stuff in this film that I saw kind of echoed or mirrored in other films. And in every case, it was films that came after this one. Mm -hmm. So they are copying The Quiet Earth and not the other way around. First and foremost, probably being when we meet our main character right after the opening credits, he wakes up and it's this overhead shot and he's lying in bed naked and him being the last person on the planet, or he, as far as he knows, he's the last person on the planet. Mm-hmm. I saw that and I was like, oh, that's where 28 Days Later got it from. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Rebirth imagery. It's remarkably brave, though, for a man to appear on screen full frontal naked. It feels yeah. like one of the last taboos in mainstream cinema, for sure. Yeah, and it's the first shot after the opening credits. Yeah. yeah. But then to speak of the first shot, once you hit play on your DVD, the first thing you'll see is a shot of the sun mm. rising. And it proceeds basically in real time. It takes, it's about two and a half minutes long Mm. and the opening credits play over it. But then it's got this, I I don't have a music background, but it sounds like this big sweeping orchestral number playing over this sunrise. And that reminded me of the beginning of Melancholia, Mm. which came out in 2013, which similarly opens with watching these planets fly by. And that one is set to um, Tristan and Isolde, I think, Mm. that big orchestral number. So the first two shots of this movie were either intentionally or not cribbed by other films later. And I just thought the movie was on a roll at that point. Mm. Yeah.
I think Serge is right that this film is hugely influential. And I think it's also one of the first examples I can think of in the modern era of the cosy catastrophe movie, which is where the Earth suffers some sort of disaster that kills almost everyone, but it doesn't ruin the world in a way. So the people who are left get to live in this cosy consumerist paradise, completely free from restrictions of credit limits or speed limits. Right. And it's almost sort of like a disaster porn, but also wish fulfillment at the same time. Mm. And what surprises me about this film is that this character, who I get the impression was kind of a loner before all of this happened, certainly he doesn't make reference to any family or any friends right. during the movie. Mm. He seems to go nuts very quickly. It seems to be like a matter of weeks. I don't know. I don't know whether one would go quite so batshit in such a short space of time. I mean, we've all experienced the pandemic and various lockdowns <laughs> at this point. So how plausible did you guys find it? I found it very plausible. Okay. I think because it was so instantaneous, though. Like, we are still in communication with people, even if we are stuck in our houses. And this is before the internet. You know, they had telephones and that was it. And to wake up and have everyone gone, like, every single person, I don't know. I think that would drive you crazy. Yeah. And if I might add on to that thought, this is a very mild spoiler. I'll keep it vague. It's not just that he's alone. It's that he has reason to think he might have been partially responsible. Mm -hmm. I watched this movie totally blind. All I knew was the premise. Guy may or may not be the last person on the planet. And when he realizes in the first 10, 15 minutes that he can't find anyone else, he doesn't seem as surprised as I would have thought thought yeah which i thought was interesting mm. but anyway just to get back to the original issue is like why did he go mad so fast i think it was guilt mixing with the shock sure yeah i think also because i've been watching the last man on earth the show and <laughs> the difference as well the character in the last man on earth is an idiot <laughs> uh, the character in this movie is not an idiot he's quite smart he makes good choices after his episode of mania, he starts getting like garden supplies. So he's thinking, like he's thinking, oh, my resources will run out eventually. In The Last Man on Earth, they just raid supermarkets. They don't even open doors. They just shoot doors with guns because <laughs> that's the easiest and simplest way to open a door. It was kind of refreshing to have a character that wasn't completely useless. Like he was making choices for his future. Yeah. To build on that, I really like the first half hour of this movie, not to speak of the last hour, but I think the first half hour was my favorite mm -hmm. just because of it was sort of like a character study of this guy. Mm. And he had scenes where he was completely off his rocker, mm. talking to himself, yelling at God, and then he would settle down and he would do something really clever and resourceful and proactive. Mm. He was a consistently written character, but he didn't have like one uniform mode. That's true. And I don't know, watching it, especially in future listeners, we are merely a year and a half into our quarantine when we record this. Um, <laughs> and watching him, I was like, yeah, you have good days and you have bad days. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. 
I haven't quite gone as far as wanting to slip into a negligee and run around <laughs> with a shotgun, but <laughs> who knows? This is, as you say, only a year and a half into the pandemic, perhaps two or three more years into it, <laughs> things will have changed. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's relatable. If there was zero people on Earth. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I might try it. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how they were going to play the fact that he puts on a dress and I was worried that it was just going to be a simple one-to-one, he puts on the dress because he's crazy. And there is some of that. But he's looking at himself in the mirror, and it's dialogueless. He's just staring at his reflection. And the way that he's sizing up how his body appears in this dress, he gets this funny look on his face where my take on it, my read on it, he's thinking, why did we bother with gender roles? I look good in this. <laughs> right. I thought he was role-playing touching another human body. That was the sort oh, of sense that I got. It might from be it. that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think if we wanted to shift into acts two and three, I do find it touching and incredibly relatable. The the first thing he does upon meeting another human being mm. is hug them. Yeah. Even before they speak, they hug. And having gone through such a long period where being close to another person and certainly touching them has been unthinkable. I mean, I know people who feel so deprived of human contact because they live alone. They try to describe it to me as though it's, it's almost as though their skin is burning. Mm. They're just so desperate to touch somebody. Yeah. So yeah, I found that incredibly moving, actually, that scene. Yeah. Mm. When he meets Joanne, I mean, she pulls a gun on him, but like she drops the gun within seconds and she even says it's not real. Mm. And then their reaction to each other is so warm and so immediate. I thought for a second this was a woman he knew Mm. from before the event. But then, no, he's just relieved to see another human being. Yeah. Yeah. And it just reminds you that when you are in a difficult situation, Mm. everybody just sort of levels down to some basic humanity and starts relating to each other on a really warm and empathetic level. And it just kind of makes you wonder why we can't be like that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. But then you start adding people and that's when it gets uh, complicated. Yes. (laughs) Because once you get beyond two people, there's in-groups and out-groups all of a sudden. Yeah. Because there's the possibility of one person speaking to the other person and the other person not knowing about it. And yeah, yeah, you start getting paranoia and vision. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting watching the dynamic grow one person at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also to do with like hierarchy because naturally people kind of assert themselves as the leader or not the leader. or So there's that sort of dynamic as well. Yeah. And then you have questions of race cropping up as well. Joanne remarks on this, that faced with this situation, the white man thought that he was God and the Maori thought that he was dead. Mm. And it's also disappointing that for her, whereas the male characters have interesting deaths that have intrigue and meaning, she just shocked herself to death with a hairdryer, which is (laughs) disappointing. They made her the referee between the other two characters which is certainly a role, and I think it's an interesting one. In particular, there's a, um, getting a little bit into the third act, a love triangle develops. Joanne likes both of these guys, and neither guy is incredibly comfortable with that. And there is a point where they literally have their hands around each other's throats, Mm -hmm. and it is Joanne's mission to fire, she fires a shot at them, which whizzes past, and then they briefly stop fighting, and then she says... If you don't stop this, I'm 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 gonna shoot one of you, and I don't care who it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was one of my favorite moments. Yeah, but yeah, she was kind of there to respond to the men, 
in most of the scenes that she's in. Yeah. Mm. She gets some interesting quirks at the beginning when our main character, Zach, is getting to know her. Mm -hmm. Her theories about the relationship between beauty and intelligence is quite interesting. Mm. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, she's an interesting character until there are two men and then all of a sudden she kind of takes the back seat. Yeah, yeah but I, I, I still don't think she's completely... She's not a flake. No. She does hold her own. Yeah, she's certainly not going to let her future in this world be defined by the two men. Yes. Mm. She has agency of her own. Yes, yes. There were kind of two points I wanted to bring up um, in terms of it could have been bad. So, Zach, there's this moment where Joanne's fallen asleep and he has this urge to grope her or something. Mm. He's leering over her and trying to control himself from mm. touching her. But then he just gets a blanket and, and pulls it over her. But, oh, that could have been bad. Mm-hmm. I thought almost kind of like the opposite. I thought he was trying to figure out how to put the blanket on her without touching her inappropriately. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's how I yeah. read that scene. Oh, okay. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is they depict Api the Maori character as a psychopath. And I mean, I know they don't really kind of go into it as much, but I was like, oh, is this going to happen? Like the non-white guy is the bad guy here? Yeah, something that stands out as my mind is something I really didn't like as soon as it happened was this fake out of like, oh, is Api a psychopathic murderer? Mm. He mentions that when the event was taking place, he was in a fight and he was being pushed into a river by his friend mm-hmm. and in the process of drowning when the event happened. And Joanne asks him, why was your mate trying to drown you? And he's like, oh, because I killed his wife. Yeah. And I heard that and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the explanation is just so roundabout. I mean. <laughs> I didn't like the fake out because later we find out that his friend's wife fell in love with him and he didn't reciprocate. So she killed herself and then his friend blamed Oppie, which led to their fight. And I don't like any of that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a way to kind of demonize a character, but then you find out the truth, the context of what happened. And it's like, uh, it felt I like a know. really contrived yeah, it did. third wheel love triangle conflict it did. that I felt the movie did not need. Mm. Yeah. The explanation for exactly what is going on here and why the Earth is suddenly devoid of people, it's open to a lot of different interpretations and certainly people have interpreted it in a lot of different ways. It could be a cosmic event, that it could be the result of a scientific experiment gone wrong, or it could be a subjective experience on the part of the main protagonist and everybody else isn't real, Mm. which they giggle about at one point. And all three of them are perfectly valid interpretations and there are more variations on them. And I think that makes the film really interesting. And the fact that the characters even engage with that, I find really interesting. Yeah, I really like how they covered all the possibilities. Mm. And they covered all the possibilities in ways that felt like actual human beings when faced with this weird situation might ponder what's going on. Mm. And yeah, we get everything from I'm imagining it to um, there might actually be a scientific explanation to at one point somebody says maybe God blinked. Yes. We were talking about rebirth imagery, seeing the main character naked on his bed at the beginning of the movie. And I noticed that at the end of what I feel like is the end of the first act and the beginning of the second, he puts a shotgun in his mouth you hear an explosion from off screen and then he looks distractedly at it 
the very next thing you see is him leaping salmon-like naked from the waters of the beach that he ends the movie on, Mm. having gone through another transition, which I don't necessarily want to spoil. And it makes me think, has he actually killed himself and is the rest of the movie some other kind of experience oh, that we're watching? Right. Oh. Is the explosion that we've heard actually him killing himself and the rest of the movie is something else? Huh. That's interesting because, yeah, because he's lost all hope at that point. And yeah. after that event, it's almost like all his dreams are coming true. Like people exist and he has a purpose. And, yeah. you know, he saves the day. He's the savior. He's the main character in his own story again. Yeah. And even just simple things like I love him going from playing with a model train in a department store to driving a real one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a great smash cut. <laughs> yeah. It's a great montage. But yeah, you're right, Dan. He does recast himself as a hero with a purpose, whereas mm. before he was kind of lost. I like that interpretation. Yeah. It does carry through the rest of the film, doesn't it? Not to get into spoilers, mm. but that recontextualizes and help explain what happens at the end of this movie. I like that. Mm. Should we talk about the end? (laughs) What's everyone's interpretation of the end? Yeah, so listeners, spoilers, if you want to skip this part, (laughs) feel free to just hit that 30-second button. (laughs) Well, I know what the director thinks has happened, that the effect has happened again just at the instant that the main character has destroyed the lab. So that means that the two characters that he met are left to live like Adam and Eve in their new world alone, unfettered by his presence, and he wakes up in a completely different dimension, having moved on yet again, and he's doomed to live out the rest of his life alone again Mm. in that world, with Saturn rising in it for some reason. So I did want to ask, is he alone on Earth? Is he still on Earth? Yeah, that's the bit that I don't understand, because he should still be on Earth, right? I don't (laughs) quite understand why he's in the orbit of Saturn suddenly. Yeah. Unless it's a dimension of Earth where it's in a different part of the galaxy. Yeah. I'm not sure. Possibly. I mean, you know, it is sci-fi. And Mm. everybody viewing a sci-fi film is going to make one attempt at interpreting it literally. Yeah. (laughs) Which is great. But very quickly after I watched it for the first time, my brain settled into... I am not going to try to understand this in any scientific manner. Maybe he died again. Maybe he's been dead the whole time. But the point is that for the second time, he has woken up in a brand new world all alone, and he's got to figure it out again. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, it being the year and a half that it's been in quarantine that resonated with me, because at least in my life, you solve problems, you have good days and bad days. And then things happen, and I haven't reached an equilibrium yet. Mm. And I sympathize with that immensely. So it's not so much what happened to him, but it's that something happened to him. It's like he came up with this plan Mm. to fix everything, to stop a second event, and he pulled it off maybe. I mean, he's not dead now. (laughs) It's not the inky blackness of an afterlifeless death. He's like conscious. Where am I going with this? (laughs) I think all I mean to say is that I appreciate the emotions of the ending more than the facts of the ending. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I had in my notes the first time I watched the movie, oh, the final shot is him waking up on a beach and he sees these water spouts off in the ocean and then a Saturn rising above the horizon. 
that's not the last shot of the film, though, and I didn't notice until my second watch. Mm. The credits start rolling over that Saturn rise, and then before the credits finish, there's a reverse shot Mm. of his face just staring up at Saturn being like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. I just I really like that it ended not on this weird sci-fi gotcha that's impossible to figure out, but just on somebody having a very human reaction to the situation. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. you'll notice that his trusty dictaphone that he's been using <laughs> to keep notes on his experiment and so on all the way through, he's still got it, but at that point he realizes that it's useless yeah. because nobody's ever going to hear it. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That shot actually did remind me of two other, not films, but Contact did remind me of Contact mm. and also Neon Genesis um, oh, yeah. Evangelion that anime which also ends on a beach well one of the endings anyway so I did like the kind of ambiguous ethereal like what is going on kind of uh, last shot in this film and just how it's sort of ambiguous I mean they did explain it so my understanding of the event is this experiment caused whatever happened. Mm. And because those three characters happened to die at that instant, they survived and it's branched off into some alternate dimension. And then Zach again dies at another event, which branches off into another dimension. Is that my understanding of this movie? Yeah, so that I think that's the literal interpretation of it. And it's not wrong. Mm, it's not wrong at all. It is the literal interpretation of the script as it was written. And yeah. the director says, thematically, it's about science, how the ethics of the scientist right back to the ancient Greeks, right through to Isaac Newton and so on, that they dedicated their lives to driving back the frontiers of knowledge for the benefit of mankind. But in the modern world, that's no longer valid because now they push back the frontiers of science for the benefit of the joker that's paying and no one else. Mm. And the joker that's paying makes sure that no one else can have that knowledge. So basically it outlines the kind of scientific dilemma and who has the right to own knowledge. Yeah. So that's kind of the theme of the movie. Another thing I I wanted to ask though, um, because they are trying to investigate what happened during the film and they discover some bodies and they say, oh, there's no maggots. Yeah. So they had died after the event. They did, yeah. So you've got your three main characters. You've got two characters, including the original director, who are dead in a car accident in the middle of a road. And I think Joanne refers to finding a dead baby in a hospital Mm. who clearly survived the incident. So that's six people in total who survived this uh, event in New Zealand alone which the scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who names this as one of his favourite movies. Oh, really? Yeah, he pointed out that statistically only a maximum of eight people die in a given second, unless <laughs> there's some sort of disaster or something. But statistically, on average, eight people per second. For six of them to be in New Zealand is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. Given the population in the 80s as well. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what special piece of trivia have you discovered in an abandoned kitchen today? Mm. 
Well, uh, this film features the development of a, a worldwide energy grid, which uh, Nikola Tesla was also working on. Um, his energy grid was named the World Wireless System. The phone number in this movie that Zach gives out over the radio broadcast is 396121, which is also the patent number of Tesla's thermomagnetic motor. The exact oh, number, which is that's wow. an incredible reference. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, that's specific. Yeah, I looked it up, and it it really is the same number. So that's fun. Wow, that's not just trivia; that's an Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's all trivia. The score. Shall we talk about the score? So the score is by a composer that I do not uh, know about, John Charles. Is he a big name in New Zealand, Dan? No, never heard of him. No. Hasn't seemed to have done that many scores either for film. Uh, Maybe he's bigger in the classical realm. Uh, No, never heard of him. It's an orchestral score, and immediately I knew who played it because New Zealand only has one orchestra. Yes. <laughs> the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. So I was like, well done, New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, I thought it was glorious myself. I mean, it's very big, but it's desolate and sad at the same time, whilst still being really epic in scale and grandiose. I mean, the main theme, which I noticed crescendos over the opening titles as the composer's name appears, which Mm. I thought, (laughs) was that his choice or did they do that to him? I don't know. But I really liked the main theme because it was kind of ambivalent and mysterious, but also quite emotional. And then in other scenes like the consumerist montage, it wasn't afraid to get a bit silly and be a bit Disney-esque and make fun of the situation. So... When it is present in the soundtrack, it is really present. I mean, it's big, but it wasn't overplayed. I didn't feel it wasn't. It didn't feel as though it was ever present. Mm, it was well cued. I really loved the theme, the main theme, and it did sound very familiar to like American composers. So like George Gershwin or Aaron Copland, like yeah. it had a very sort of like not ambiguous harmonies or chord progressions but um sort of open it didn't sound too filmy no like it it sounded more sort of uh romantic and lush yeah Mm. quite classical which is probably serge white put you in mind of melancholia because it did sound more classical right yeah Mm, and i noticed that the score was similar to the opening of melancholia before I realized what I was seeing was also similar. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I noticed the score first. Yes. I also, like, older films tended to have that sort of overture mm. beginning where it was just like one shot or a series of montages and the introduction of the musical theme. Yeah, and I miss that because I liked giving filmmakers like a two-minute palate cleanser where everybody's finding their seat and rustling with their popcorn Mm -hmm. just to get everybody settled into the mood of what the film is going to be. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring up the difference between this movie and the novel. Mm. Uh, So I did read the synopsis of the novel on Wikipedia, so I haven't actually read the novel, <laughs> and I hope this is right. But there is quite a lot of differences. So the experiment that causes the invent in, in the novel is a biological experiment, mm. so it's not an energy experiment. And the main character, Zach, who was John in the novel, he is a geneticist. Mm. So it seems more to do with biology in the novel and all life is wiped out. It's not just humans, it's all life. But then he does discover fish. 
And so he finds out that it doesn't penetrate water for some reason. Presumably his microbiome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Also in the book, uh, Joanne is not even a character, really. She's a woman that they find eventually, but then she dies pretty suddenly. And it's pretty much just Zach and Api, just two characters pretty much Mm. for the whole of the novel. And there's another sort of presence as well that's kind of following them, like some sort of entity that's making these weird sounds. And then at the end of the novel, Zach, there's some background story with his son dying from drowning and him sort of dealing with his guilt. And then he kind of recalls like trying to commit suicide, so jumping out a hotel window. And then at the moment that he dies, he wakes up in the hotel. And in the novel, it's a time loop. Right. So he keeps looping over again and again and again. Yeah, so it's basically a dark version of Groundhog Day. Yeah. Which Groundhog Day was originally in its first iteration. It wasn't Mm. a comedy. It was very, very dark. It was like a a psychological horror movie with a guy being forced to live the same day over and over again and going steadily insane. And you could interpret this film the same way. Mm. I mean, notice the focus on his alarm clock, which is stuck on the same time. Yeah, I think it's more explained in the book as well. Mm. So that is the time that he dies. So that's why it keeps recurring in his day to day. I remember thinking, because in the movie, there's this recurring, you know, the clock is at 6.12 when he first wakes up at 6.12 a.m. And I thought the point of him looking at the clock was going to be that it stopped but then it changes over to 6.13, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, okay, so that meant nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, they didn't really explain that. <laughs> no. Although, you know what I read in the trivia is that 6.12 is apparently a reference to a Bible verse. Right. Oh. Revelation 6.12, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood. Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's not a bad reference. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very ominous. (laughs) But yeah, they seem to have made changes in the film to avoid the interpretation that he is stuck in a time loop. Yeah. Yeah. I think also adding the Joanne character was much more of a sort of love triangle Mm. character study as well in the film. Yeah, which is probably the least interesting aspect of it. And it's been compared to an earlier film, The World, The Flesh and the Devil, from 1959, where there are only three people left on Earth. You know, it's two guys and a woman, and of course they fight over them, and one of them is Harry Belafonte, so there are racial undertones in there as well, which do crop up in this film too. I mean, they do confront that at one point, Mm. where Zach keeps ordering everyone around, and RP quite rightly questions why he is doing that. Mm. That in itself crops up in at least one other film that I know about. It's a post-apocalyptic film that came out 2015, 16, called Z for Zachariah. Okay. Margot Robbie is alone in an apocalypse, and she's in this secluded valley that's been protected from the radiation that killed everybody else. And full disclosure, I haven't seen this movie, Uh but I I did read the book that it's based on. Right. A man shows up one day, and he's in a radiation suit, so he has survived, and is played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. And in the book, this confrontational power dynamic develops between the two of them and spoiler alert for like a 50 year old book the woman decides if there's only one other person on the planet far be it from her to kill that person so she's not going to kill him but what she does is she steals his radiation suit and exits the valley to see if she can find something better and i thought that was a really interesting end to the novel and then when they turned it into a film 
love triangle. Yeah. Right. They invent a brand new character played by Chris Pine, and I'm sure he's great in the movie. I haven't seen it, <laughs> but uh, that became another post-apocalyptic love triangle between these two guys and one woman. One of the men is of color. Mm. So uh, I feel like The Quiet Earth is, to go back to what we were saying previously, really influential for a film that not a lot of people seem to have seen these days. Mm. Yeah. yeah, except possibly filmmakers. That's possibly what's going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every filmmaker's seen it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think the love triangle was that bad. I found it quite engaging in terms of propelling the film forward. And I, I don't hate the love triangle. <laughs> I think as a dramatic construct, I think a love triangle, it's not bad. It just felt like when it happened, when it arrived, I was like, oh, okay, because of course there's going to be a love triangle. <laughs> yeah. Right. It feels like the least interesting thing that they could do in the film, but they do it in the most interesting way that they possibly can. Maybe right. it's not soapy. Yeah. Right. Uh, I want to quickly point out all the New Zealand things in this movie. <laughs> New Zealand. It's set in New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand. So I was like looking at all the shops and going, oh, it's Whitcalls, New Zealand bookshop. <laughs> and when he's in the radio station, there's a quick close up of one of the tapes and it says Radio Hauraki, which is a, it used to be a pirate radio station in New Zealand. And they would go off into the uh, open sea on a boat and illegally broadcast this radio station, Radio Hauraki. That's why it's called Radio Hauraki because they used to go out into the Hauraki Gulf to broadcast. And I don't know why I found this funny, but New Zealanders love frosted glass doors <laughs> for their front door and their back door. I don't know why they do this. And it just made me laugh every time <laughs> when he was investigating all these houses. Like, oh, that looks like my childhood home. What I particularly loved about that scene is that he just brazenly smashed it yeah. And then timidly looked through the shards and went, hello. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, commit, man. You've just broken this window. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> yeah. I did like it as well that when he's broadcasting his address, it's just like Greylin, which is like a very dull, unassuming suburb in Greater Auckland. It's, <laughs> is it? okay. it's just such a New Zealand address to broadcast it just doesn't sound very glamorous yeah well i like that they mind a joke out of it and i don't know the context of the suburb within auckland i just know that he puts out the first radio message identifying where he lives and then it's like a couple of scenes later he revises the message to be like no 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 i've moved into this mansion yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just like broadcast after broadcast it's like oh no i've moved again this is where i live <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Okay, it's the Movie Awards. It's where we bring our favourite science experiment, gone wrong parts of the film, and the number of satellite dish exploding, hang on, where are we now? Categories. <laughs> Best quote. So my favourite quote is when Zach meets Oppie for the first time, and it's adversarial. Oppie has a gun on him, and Oppie asks him, are you alone? And Zach's like, yeah, 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 I'm alone. And then immediately the radio crackles with Joanne, Joanne's voice, mm. and she's like, hey, where are you? And Oppie looks at Zach, and he goes, you're telling lies. And Zach goes, no, well, 
what would you have done? And (laughs) (laughs) I just like that a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's very relatable, isn't it? Yeah. Mm, Caught out immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. I've got loads of favorite lines in the movie. Probably my most favorite one is from Zach's speech to his cardboard cutout crowd Mm. when he goes crazy towards the end of the first act. And he says, and this ties back into the, the scientist theme, how easy to believe in the common good when that belief is rewarded with status, wealth, and power. Mm. I love the end of that speech as well, because he says, uh, I have been condemned to live. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so profound. That's a great scene. And then the power goes out, which is... <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, really quite a powerful moment. Yeah, I particularly love when he says uh, the thing about status, wealth and power, that it cuts to cardboard cutouts of Hitler and Nixon. Mm. And it makes you realise even those guys, they thought they were doing the right thing. Mm. No, nobody thinks they're evil. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also with Hitchcock, like in the background as well. <laughs> yes. Mm. <laughs> My favourite quote was actually uh, Zach's speech, but I have a second favourite, which is when Zach is trying to explain to Joanne about what happened with, with the effect, and she replies, um, of course, an exclusive all-male club playing mm-hmm. God with the universe. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Somebody had to say it. Yeah. Best hair or costume. I was thinking about this, and when there's only three characters, there's not a whole lot to choose from, and nobody changes hairstyles. But anyway, I was thinking for costuming, when Zach Hobson first wakes up and he's naked in bed, he's not 100% naked. He's wearing one accessory. He's wearing Mm. his security badge around his neck. And I didn't notice until my second viewing and he stands up and he like walks to a mirror and he's like just you know rubbing the sleepy out of his eyes and then he he grabs the security badge and he tears it off his neck and i thought in terms of economy of costuming the man is wearing three square inches of of anything (laughs) and they mined some meaning out of it Mm -hmm. yeah i like that yeah I didn't notice that. Mm. I have to watch that again. How about you, Dan? Uh, it's funny you mentioned that there are only three characters. I thought all of their costumes, apart from Zach, uh, were, were great. <laughs> I mean, Joanne, it's the end of the world. No other humans. Why wouldn't you dress in crazy yeah. dresses? Like at one point, <laughs> she's got like, a matching pastel checker blazer pants number. And another mm. uh, scene, she's wearing like a multicolored frilly dress with... What looks like fins, it's just all sorts of things going on. Yeah, just amazing. I I would be walking around in my pyjamas, obviously, (laughs) at the end of the world. Well, yeah, of course. (laughs) How about you, Conrad? Well, to to capture all three characters, I actually chose RP, and specifically his chosen outfit for when he goes jogging, which consists of skin-tight leather trousers, (laughs) a ripped blue and white striped T-shirt, and a khaki midriff shirt. But the odd thing is that he actually looks great in it, so oh, he well does. done him. He does. I mean, I can't imagine the chafing, though. <laughs> oh, Most 80s moment. The thing that I came up with was uh, he's the last person on the planet, and he moves into this house, and he concocts this computer that he can just, like, talk to. 
and it like talks back to him. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I don't. It was weird. It's like this movie wasn't set in the future, and yet I felt like they were making a sci-fi film in the '80s, and they're like, "Well, we got to have some bit of futuristic tech." So how about a computer、mm. that talks to him? Yeah. Yes. Either that or the radio-controlled lawnmower. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It reminds me of、uh, the thing where Kurt Russell's arguing、yeah. with a chess computer. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> How about you, Conrad? Okay, the only '80s native among us. So the thing I noticed, and I thought, oh yeah, that's the '80s. No duvets. <laughs> All the beds just consisted、oh. of sheets and blankets. And I remember this. This is because in the '80s in the UK, so I imagine in New Zealand too,、um, duvets. Were an exotic import from Sweden、oh. that only really posh people had,、huh. and they bought them from Habitat, which was a very specific store. And、uh, yeah, I didn't have a duvet until well into the nineties.、Huh. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I, I it was the same for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> favorite scene. My favorite scene is when Zach Hobson goes on a rampage in the church with a shotgun. Oh. It's part of his psychological break. So he he fixates on this giant statue of Jesus on the cross, and what he does is he points the shotgun at Jesus, and then he looks up in the air and he goes, "If you don't come out, I'll shoot your kid." All right. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> and I just thought it was just a fantastic summation of、um, a breakdown.、Mm. It yeah,、is. it's quite an existential moment, isn't it? He's、yeah. he's just desperately searching for God, so he holds his son rants. Yeah, <laughs> and then finally decides that he must be God himself. Yeah, he does. Well, my favorite scene is the scene after Zach and Joanne have, I guess, supposedly had a bit of hanky panky. So he's he's woken up the next day in in bed, and she, she brings him breakfast as、oh, if、yeah. she's like room service. <laughs> And after she asks him, would he like anything else? And he he replies, more crumpet. And she, you know, says, oh, I don't have any of that. She, she shows herself off,、um, and she turns around and she is、uh, brazenly showing off her bare naked buttocks. And Zach is, is very <laughs> taken aback by this, so he spills his coffee all over his genitals, and he, and he screams. And it's it's just oh, it's just beautifully timed,、um, yeah. Well, sort of executed scene. Yeah. Most cliche sci-fi moment. So if if we're going cliched sci-fi moment, and I'm not complaining about this, but it is sort of bog standard. It's the movie being resolved with this suicide mission going to blow something up. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say that too. Yeah, and then like they get a twist out of it after, and again, I'm not complaining because once it happens, it's not just that the character is dead and everybody cries and the credits roll. It's um,、yes. there's a twist after it. Yeah. Mm, mm, But mm. leading up to that point, I was like, oh yeah, I know this trope. Yeah, and only yeah. one person can do it as well. You know. Yeah. And. and- <laughs> And they、yeah. have to die in in the process. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. It's, it's the equivalent of like the earlock scene in in every space movie、mm. ever made. <laughs> mm. I can only do it manually. <laughs> Goodbye. Of course. Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah. How are you, Conrad? For me, actually, I went for one that was more like a horror movie cliche, and it's from early on in the film, and it's when Zach is wandering the strangely quiet Earth. And he gets a jump scare out of some clothing on a line. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I thought that was <laughs> very strange, was... very strangely timed jump scare. Best special, special effect. effect. 
for best special effect, I did not want to say the final shot. <laughs> so I racked my brain and I came up with, it's not an optical effect, but I noticed there's a couple dolly zooms in this film that I thought were really well done for like a, especially for like a low budget film. Mm. Just to be clear, a dolly zoom is a particular kind of shot where you are pushing towards a subject and zooming out at the same time, or I suppose vice mm. versa. Uh, and it creates this effect. You know it when you see, you've seen it before, like the most famous one I can think oh, of is, is in the Jaws. The vertigo effect. Yeah, the vertigo effect. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. Yes, Jaws, that scene. Yeah, when when Brody looks out and sees the shark in the water, it's, yeah, the background is moving in one direction and the subject is moving in the other direction. I've attempted it once and it is, it's a lot harder than it looks. Mm -hmm. I quite like the, uh, in terms of effect, I, I know this is, a little bit cliche now, but the the trippy effect when that that tremor effect in quotation marks happens uh, when they're in the house and they just start walking on the walls and oh I mean, yeah, it, that it, was it's, mine. It's a revolving <laughs> room, obviously, or, or just you know props stuck to the walls, but um, it's great every time. <laughs> yeah, I do like it that there is. I think one of the shots is Zach running down a hallway, and the whole hallway is obviously must have been revolving which yeah. predates inception by quite some time so yeah. well done yeah. <laughs> favorite sound effect so i've got a really cheeky answer for this my favorite sound effect is when he is giving a speech to a bunch of cardboard cutouts and he is literally playing the sound effect of people applauding <laughs> oh yes when he reaches a point in his speech where there should be applause yeah yeah I love it that there are it, it's on like reel to reel tape yeah. plays yeah. as well. <laughs> it's not even like a stereo. <laughs> no. My favorite sound for this movie. I had to point out when he goes to the lab and he goes up the elevator, there's like a sound for the doors. It's like yeah. that's just a normal elevator. Why would it make that sound? I know it's sci-fi, <laughs> but come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was mine as well because it's oh. such a futuristic lab, Dan. It's got Star Trek doors. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Most funniest moment. It's not even a funny moment in the film, but it made me think of something that I thought was funny. Towards the very end of the film, Zach is like, I'm going to go back and get the radio controller for this truck, and it's going to take me two hours. And he leaves. And then Oppie and Joanne are like, well, if he's going to be gone for two hours, and then they have sex. Yeah. And, and they're talking afterwards, and then all of a sudden they hear the rumbling of this truck, and they're like, what's that? And they both stand up and they see the truck approaching, and Oppie goes, how long has it been? And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if she said, like, it's only been five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but she says it's been 20 minutes. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Anyway. That's a valid amount of time to copy. <laughs> it's, it's respectable, <laughs> yeah. How about you, Dan? I did really like the scene with Zach and, and Joanne in the hotel room. Um, but another scene that I thought was funny for some reason was um, when Zach is trying to reach anyone. Uh, so he's done the broadcast, he's, he's driven around, um, but he ends up just resorting to playing saxophone in the rain. Which <laughs> I thought that was, it was funny. Just, it's a it's a great looking scene. It's ridiculous, but it's uh, yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it was good. My funniest moment was um, yeah. If you if you don't come out, I'll shoot the kid. So I just I just thought that was <laughs> that was hilarious. The scene in the church. So ransom Jesus. 
And that's our Mooblies. Yes. This, this is, is Melinda, Melinda and Aaron, Aaron from Dreamland, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, final verdict time. Should the quiet earth meet a lovely lady and strapping gent and be set free to be loved by the world, or should it spend its days wandering the dark, lonely reaches of the oubliette, never to be seen again? Serge, you have presented us with the quiet earth. What are your final thoughts? Okay, so I think it should be released. Um, It's probably not a surprise at this point. I think... It's clearly influenced so many other films. Uh, I think it's worth exploring where a lot of these things came from. I knew I liked the film as it was winding down, but I'll tell you, the final shot really did it for me, and I was like, all right, I really enjoy what this thing did. (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely think it should be released. Yes, I I, I 100% agree. I think it's... It has to be influential. Yeah. It has to be. Like, it, it just seems like all of these other films have, have borrowed from this movie. And for some reason, no one has seen it. I'd never seen it. I don't know any New Zealanders that have seen it. It's it's <laughs> a phenomenal film in itself, let alone from New Zealand, uh, where we don't do sci-fi at all. It's so um, innovative and in, 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 in creative and in using its budget and even interesting uh, camera angles and, and editing and the way it was shot. And yeah, I, I liked how and sort of ambiguous it was. It did explain it, but there are sort of possibilities of other explanations. So um, yeah, and that final shot really, really uh, makes this movie a memorable sci-fi. Yeah, well, I'm not going to be the holdout here. I, I was the same. Sergio messaged me after you finished watching it and yeah. said that you knew it. You didn't want to spoil it, but you knew exactly what your verdict was yeah. as soon as it ended. And I was the same because as soon as it ended, I thought, having seen the last shot, I want to watch it again mm. because that's completely opened up my possible interpretations of this movie. It's a very intelligent movie. It's a very warm and funny movie. It's mind-blowing in its spectacle sometimes for the budget that it has, whilst also being interesting in terms of its character exploration, particularly of the central character in the first third. And it's beautifully shot, it's beautifully scored, and it gives you a window into New Zealand Mm. in the 80s, and there are no hobbits anywhere. So... Yeah, as a cultural artefact, I think it's also really fascinating. So I don't know why this film isn't better known. I think it it's a stone-cold classic, mm. so it should definitely be out there. Yes, yes, it should. Cool. Okay, let me just slip this negligee onto it and uh, <laughs> set it free. Okay, I've been condemned to love. Goodbye. Don't forget to give it a shotgun <laughs> to complete the look. Every outfit needs the right accessory. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> So, Serge, it's been amazing having you on the show for a fourth time. <laughs> Thanks for having um, me. I'm hoping it's <laughs> the fourth of many more to come. <laughs> How can people hear more about your views on films and your insights? So I'm Cold Crash Pictures across my handles. Uh, uh, YouTube is primarily where I publish. And I'm Cold Crash Picks on Twitter. Either of those variations on Instagram. <laughs> okay. Well, you should definitely check it out. And listeners, if you like dinosaurs... Go to his YouTube <laughs> page immediately. <laughs> <laughs> they do tend to yes. crop up a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the latest Saurian cinema video essay is incredibly interesting looking at all the 
bad, in inverted commas, dinosaur movies, just thinking about them in terms of what they mean to you personally as an aspiring filmmaker, I just thought that it was just, yeah, incredible. And anything that involves sock puppets mm. has my vote. So everyone yeah. should definitely check that one out. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And you make a really good point. Like you learn a lot about cinema from watching bad cinema. Yeah. Uh, mm. I, for, for some reason, I love watching bad cinema. I get the same <laughs> amount of enjoyment out of it. Yeah, me too. And if you want to follow us, we are Movie Oubliette on all social platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to support the show, go on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can vote on and suggest films and gain access to all kinds of extra tidbits from our episodes, including extended versions of interviews with our guests. And for $5, you get access to our monthly minisodes, where we discuss a recent film, or as in our most recent episode, <laughs> a trilogy of films. Yes. Yeah, we're talking about the Fear Street trilogy. So, yes. yeah. Check that out. Yeah, if you're fans of R.L. Stein, mm. go watch the movies and listen to our Minnesota. Yes. We always have a separate section in those for spoilers, so we don't ruin it for you. So, yeah, check it out. Yes. And like our listener, Evil Ed, uh, if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast or whatever other podcast platform you're using. It always helps us out, even just a little bit. It does. Yeah, we read them out on the show, so it's your chance for fame. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. So, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? So, next episode, we will be dipping into the works of one John Carpenter. Oh, yes. Yes. We will be studying one of his lesser-known films, which will be celebrating its 20th anniversary around the time that the episode comes out. It is the science fiction action horror film, Ghosts of Mars. Oh, one of those early 2000s Mars movies that came out. Yeah, I know. There were so many of them at the time. So, yeah, <laughs> it should be interesting. And we will be joined by the producer of that film, Sandy King Carpenter, who will share her recollections of making the movie. Mm. I don't know how you get these guests, Conrad. I'm, I'm still amazed. <laughs> I don't know either. I just asked. She said yes. Lovely lady. So looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, it's going to be good. Oh, we always get great guests, just like Serge today. Ah, Thanks, yes. Serge, for being with us. <laughs> Bye for now, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> See you next summer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the shape of the face is determined consciously by the brain. So if your brain had a low capacity, you would be both ugly and stupid. <laughs>